0: But we don't very often talk about evil anymore. The word feels too intense. To call something evil feels too judgmental. And yet when you see attacks like this, and when you think back to some of the horrific events of the last century, things like the Holocaust, like the Rwandan genocide, there really is no other word that captures how totally anti-God and anti-good these things are. Evil is the darkness to God's light. But because our world, and to a large extent our church, has stopped talking about evil quite as much, it leaves us poorly equipped to deal with it when it shows up. And we end up reacting to evil in immature and dangerous ways. Often by projecting evil out onto others, generating a culture of blame. It's always everyone else's fault. It's society's fault. It's the government's fault. I am the innocent victim. We can see this on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. The attacks, the politicizing, the posturing to establish who is the victim and who is more right and who deserves the blame. This immature reaction to evil can easily be seen in the explosion of blog posts and news articles and angry YouTubers after things like the Charlottesville attack. The Twin Towers attack in 2001 rightly produced horror and anger, but immediately afterwards there was a lashing out. The U.S. was established as a pure, innocent victim. The Arab world in general became viewed as evil. As a society, we have lost, or at least we are losing, our ability to respond to these sorts of issues because we have lost or are losing our sense of what evil is. And as a church, when we see this pattern developing, it becomes more important than ever that we have an intentional understanding of a Christian response towards evil. So today, I'm going to attempt to address three main questions. First, what does society believe about evil? Second, what does the Bible have to say about evil? And third, what then is our response I should mention right off the top that this sermon is heavily influenced by an excellent book by New Testament scholar N.T. Wright called Evil and the Justice of God. And I only have time to skim the surface of a lot of these points. But if this is something that you want to dig further into, if this is something that you want to understand more about, it's an excellent choice for further reading. If you want to stop me afterwards, I can give you that uh, author and name again as well. So what does society think about evil? As I said, our society is not very good at dealing with the concept of evil. And it has become a very muddled thing. In an increasingly post-God, post-church world, the idea of a moral center, the concept of humanity itself is eroding away. This change started after World War II. It started with suspicion Western society began to see a dramatic shift towards cynicism, towards the idea that nobody can be trusted. After all, if Western society, if European society is capable of producing something like the Holocaust, then everything needs to be suspect. And this shift towards cynicism and suspicion was only accelerated in North America following 9-11. But we have gone past just suspicion about people. Not only is everyone flawed, philosophy and psychology now tell us that we don't really exist. Humans are not people. We're just a swirl of emotions and impulses and thoughts. The idea of a fixed identity, of an I or a me. It's a sort of illusion. We're in a constant flux. We're in constant transition. The me of two weeks ago is not the me of today. And so why should I be held responsible for their actions? for my actions of my past self. We live in this uncomfortable paradox where the loudest voice in spirituality is telling us, be true to ourselves, look to your inner being. But we're also being told that our inner selves are at worst an illusion and at best a moving point impossible to really pin down or understand. It's no wonder that we see people in North America having such a difficult time Grappling with and responding to this idea of evil. Even if society recognizes that evil is powerful and real and important, they have no real clue what to do about it. Other religions have also tried and I think failed to offer answers to this question. Buddhists believe that the world is essentially false. That it's an illusion or a shadow and the best thing that we can do is to escape it into nothingness or into nirvana. Jains believe that evil is evidence that there is no God. The only thing left to worship is our own souls. Hindus believe that evil exists because of our past lives, because of mistakes that we have made in the past. Anything bad that happens to us is deserved. And our best response can be to obediently take our punishment in hopes of experiencing less evil on the next go-around. Muslims believe that evil exists because the message of Allah has not been spread yet to all people. The solution to evil is for Islam to be brought to the entire world. And that has led, of course, to a small minority of Muslims who are willing to do that by any means possible. Some people have characterized the idea of evil simply as the absence of good. And this might actually be a good definition, but it can trick us into believing that evil isn't really a problem. Because nothing can be much more dangerous than you first think. If there is a hole in the road where you were expecting a stone, or empty air where you were expecting the next rung on a ladder, nothing suddenly becomes very real and very scary. Cold is just the absence of heat. But it is still a killer. So society and religion don't offer us good answers to the problem of evil. What does the Bible say? Let's start with the Old Testament. The Bible can be, in some ways, a frustrating book when it comes to looking at evil. I wish, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who wishes for this, for a a clear and concise answer on exactly where evil comes from and what it is. But it, it just doesn't seem when you read the Bible that, that the Bible is overly concerned with spelling out the exact nature of evil. It certainly isn't the main focus. And that actually gives us a hint in our own lives that spelling out clear, precise lines between good and evil and right and wrong should not be our main focus in life either. Of course we need to have ethics and morals and we need to be focused on doing what's right, but for that to become our our main focus in the way we live our lives, trying to draw those lines uh, is not something we are called to when we read the Bible. The Old Testament was not written to answer the question, what is evil and where does it come from? What is the main focus of the Old Testament is the nature of a God who is active against evil in all its forms. N.T. Wright, who I mentioned earlier, argues that the Old Testament is much more than just a general history of Israel, or a book to provide ethical information. It's actually much more than even just a book that's telling us about who God is. He argues that the Old Testament is specifically and intentionally written to tell the story of what God has done, is doing, and will do about evil. How he deals with evil in the world, the evil that crops up in Israel itself, and the evil that in fact resides personally in our own hearts. And this whole story of the Old Testament hinges on God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Before this chapter, we have three main examples of evil that serve to create a framework for our problem. We have the Tower of Babel which demonstrates the evil of arrogance and idolatry, of humanity trying to live without God. We have the flood, which reminds us how deeply God hates evil. Deeply enough that in Genesis 6.6 it says that he is sorry that he ever made the world in the first place. And then we get back to original sin, the forbidden fruit. And as we discussed earlier, it's frustrating we do not get a clear answer to what might be our biggest problem, our question here. Why in the world was there a snake in the garden in the first place? And why did it feel that it wanted to use its cunning in this way to take down humanity? Instead of an explanation of evil's origins, we see its method. Deception. Lies. Half-truths. And doubt. And we see the fallout. In each case we are presented with evil, we see what God does about it. He takes action, and he judges, by kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, by flooding the world, by splitting up humanity and muddling up the language, and after Adam and Eve's banishment, we see death enter the world. First in the story of Cain and Abel, and then in chapter 5 in the recounting of Adam's family line. Even there, it reminds us over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So the story of the Old Testament begins with a triple statement of the problem and with God's repeated answer, evil must be judged and judged severely. But then in Genesis chapter 12, God declares in and through Abraham a new way. God declares that he will continue working in a broken world through Abraham until blessing replaces curse, until homecoming replaces exile. And this is the frame on which the entire Old Testament hangs. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a repeated story of human failure and God stepping in. God rescues the Israelites from Egypt in a mighty show of force. And Israel spends the next years wandering around in the desert, complaining that they want to return back to Egypt. God commands for a tabernacle to be built for his worship. And he gives detailed instructions for Aaron and his sons to be consecrated as priests to serve. Only to find that Aaron himself is making a golden calf and encouraging people to worship it. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. But was often very much in darkness. And the Old Testament is the story of a God working in the chaos of the world to bring us out of the mud and into new life, and it is very messy work. Psalm 89 is a beautiful picture of this paradox of the Old Testament. Psalm 89 speaks for 37 verses about the wonders of what God will do, about the, about the steadfastness of His love, about His promises to us, and then abruptly switches for 14 verses to cry out and ask God how it could ever have gone so horribly wrong. And finishes with a single verse. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The Old Testament begins to deal with this problem of evil, but it sits in the middle of this messiness and doesn't offer us a firm answer. But thanks be to God, the story is not over there. Let's look at Jesus in the New Testament. There is much that could be said about the life of Jesus as a road map for dealing with evil. His time in the desert with Satan. His challenging Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the primary scriptures that formed the foundation for the EMC's ethic of nonviolence. The ways in which he dealt with the marginalized and the downtrodden. Jesus modeled a response to evil in the way he ate with sinners. In the way he stuck up for the weak and abused. The ways that he touched and healed the unclean. But what I want to draw your attention to today is the ways in which the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, serve to continue the story as set up in the Old Testament, intentionally showing the ways that evil continues to exist at many levels. The Gospels tell the story of political evil reaching its height. Rome casts a shadow over all the proceedings of the Gospels. Herod and the story of John the Baptist's execution remind us of how quickly both the Roman and Jewish leadership would squash any mention of an alternative king of the Jews. The Gospels also tell the story of corruption within Israel itself, evil within Israel. Those who were called by God to be a solution to evil have become twisted and a central part of the problem. The Pharisees are using Scripture in order to oppress and condemn, and the priests are part of a corrupt system. The revolutionaries and the zealots who are fighting out against Rome are using violence to try and get their means done. The Gospels also tell the story of evil at a demonic level. Jesus deals directly with Satan, and demons seem to lurk around every corner for Jesus, rushing at him from tombs, And approaching him through possessed people who he frees. And finally, and maybe most surprisingly, the Gospels tell the story of evil within the disciple group. Judas is the obvious example here, but the examples are constant throughout the Gospels. Jesus denounces Peter as Satan. We see evil in this group through the constant bickering about who will be the greatest. The way loyalty and bravery turn to courage and denial. Uh, turn to cowardice and denial once Jesus is arrested. It is incredibly remarkable, actually, that the first writings about Christianity would be so open about the failures and the faults of the people who were the church's first leaders. But the story of the Gospels very clearly maps out a downward spiral of evil hurtling towards the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross is as a result of political, spiritual, personal, and literal evil, all bearing down at the same time, at the same point. And the gospel writers very intentionally build up each of these different forms of evil throughout their books to make that point clear. Jesus' death was a statement about the nature of evil. As Jesus died, evil threw everything it had at him from every angle. Evil attacked with all its might. And Jesus, without complaint, without turning back, he took it all. He absorbed it. And in absorbing it, he exhausted it. In death, Jesus took on the punishment that was meant for us, took on the evil of the world in our place. But in his resurrection, we see an even stronger statement being made. If it is true that Adam and Eve's exile from the Garden of Eden show that sin and evil are equivalent to death, and if it is true that in his death Jesus took sin and evil onto himself and dealt with them fully and completely, then death no longer has power. Jesus' resurrection was more than just a statement of his divinity. It was more than just some miraculous gesture from God for doing a good job. It was the final step in this equation. It was a profound and important statement of victory over evil. It was God's act of new creation after the judgment of the old. And it was a statement of total mastery over death, of total defeat of sin, and a release for all of us, from the captivity and the bondage of sin, death, and evil. If the Bible is a book that is asking the question, what is God doing about evil, then this is the ultimate answer. The Christian story stands unique against the world's great literature and religion and philosophy. The story of the Creator God taking responsibility for what happened to His creation. The victory has been won. So how then should we respond? We live in the in-between. I've spoken about it before, and I'm sure I'll speak about it again, because understanding this is key to the way that we live our lives as Christians. Christ has achieved total victory over sin and death, and yet we are still living in a broken creation. The war... Is over, but that victory will only be fully realized when Jesus returns. It is a strange thing to have to hold both of these truths in our hands at the same time. And it was strange to Paul and the other writers of the Gospels, too. Over and over again, we find them wrestling with what it looks like to live in victory while still seeing the effects of sin and the effects of evil in and around us. Romans chapter 8, which Mike, Darren, and I spent several weeks on back in spring, might be the strongest statement in the Bible on living a victorious life in this in-between time. But for today, when we look, I want to bring our focus back to an Old Testament prophet, Micah. Perhaps no other writer in the Old Testament was as opposed to wickedness and evil, and especially the treatment of the poor, as Micah. He writes, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot out evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. Later he describes the leaders of his time As people who tear the skin from my people and break their bones in pieces. Who chop them up like meat for the pan. He lived in desperate times. Israel was falling apart as a nation. Corruption was everywhere. God will have seemed very far away. And evil was all around. But in spite of this, in chapter 6, Micah's answer to the question of what now could not be more simple... Or more powerful. What does the Lord require of us? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. To act justly. To name evil when we see it. To fight against its power and influence in our lives and communities. And to be a force for good and a light on a hill to an unjust world. To love mercy. As Jesus' death on the cross conquered sin and freed us from death. We are released to forgive others just as we have been forgiven. We are released to be ambassadors of the radical, life-changing grace that we were shown. And the sin-conquering resurrection that guarantees us life in the face of death. And to walk humbly with God. Recognizing that the journey isn't over. And how deeply we need God as we continue forward towards our assured victory. In Christ, we have a God who is actively involved in combating evil yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And as Christians, we have the opportunity to be a light to a world that has lost its ability to deal with the concept of evil. Buddhists and other Eastern religions want simply to glide over an evil world, ignoring it in hopes of being taken up into some spiritual realm. But we as Christians understand that Christ is actively involved in reconciling creation to himself, not just in the future, but here and now in this world, in this reality, in these people. The Bible tells us that the world matters and it's worth fighting for. Atheists and humanists believe that our destinies and our histories are simple rolls of the dice, that we don't have a fixed identity or soul, that no one can really take or give blame, but we serve an intentional God who has been acting throughout past, present, and future to bring about his redemption, who has created each of us with specific, fixed purpose and identity to accomplish his will. When society comes across evil, they react in immature and impulsive ways. They jump to an us-versus-them mentality. I am right, they are wrong. I am just, and they are evil. But we understand that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That the line of good and evil runs through all of us. But through Jesus, we have access to forgiveness and restoration. The world responds to evil with hatred and violence but we have been shown radical mercy and forgiveness by God and are called to share that forgiveness with the world. As Christians as the church we need to recognize that Jesus' death and resurrection has not won a victory in order for us to do nothing. The victory has been won so that we may go out as a royal priesthood And glorify God as we help to restore his people and his creation. So when it comes to a Christian response to evil. Let us look forward to a promised future. A new heaven and earth when all will be made right. And inspired by that victory and that promise. Seek to bring this present world closer and closer to that reality. As Micah did. Let us not be overwhelmed by the evil around us, but instead rest securely in our salvation, in God's sovereignty, and in a victory that has already been won, and act justly, and love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Let me pray. God, your death on the cross and your resurrection, we can never thank you enough for what you did as we look at a world around us that sometimes feels as though it's falling apart, we recognize that you have control, that the victory is already won. Help us to live securely in that, God. Help us not to live in fear, but be empowered by the victory that you have won, by your Holy Spirit living in us, and seek to build your kingdom here on earth even as we anticipate it in the future. Amen.